everyone, and welcome to San Francisco Ballet's To The Point podcast. I'm Kate McKinney, the PR and Communications Manager here at San Francisco Ballet, and I'm your host for To The Point, the audio program note you can listen to while making dinner, walking the dog, or commuting from your bed to your couch. Today we're here to talk about Program 5. This program is a series of three love letters to San Francisco Ballet's dancers. Made by SF Ballet Artistic Director and Principal Choreographer Helgi Thomason and internationally acclaimed dance makers Kathy Marston and David Dawson, these three works were created with specific dancers in mind and highlight those dancers' particular strengths and artistry. Today we're going to talk a bit about these ballets and these choreographers, including giving you some insight into the creative processes, and then of course give you some hints of what to look for. Sound good? Then let's get to the point. The evening starts with Helgi Thomason's ballet, Seven for Eight. Helgi is, of course, best known as the artistic director of San Francisco Ballet, but he's also the principal choreographer, a title assumed when he took the role in 1985. What does this mean exactly? Well, essentially, that more than anyone else, even more than the choreographer in residence, Helgi's works form the backbone of the company's repertoire. This can be hard to notice at first, especially as the company commissions so much new work and so many choreographers come through San Francisco Ballet's doors, studios, and stage. But think about it. Nutcracker? Helgi's. Swan Lake? Helgi's. Romeo and Juliet? Helgi's. And the list goes on. He's made more than 50 works in the 35 years he's been with the company, and at least one or two appear on every single season. If you'd ask him, he may also tell you that being the principal choreographer means that he needs to create works that are necessary for the company. For example, a program needs an opener? Helgi will make that. A gala needs a pot of de- Yep, over to Helgi. But more than anything else, being the principal choreographer, alongside artistic director, means that he knows the dancers better than anyone. He sees them throughout their careers, from their days in the school till retirement, and watches them not only in rehearsals for a specific ballet or in class on a specific day, but day in and day out. He knows what makes them tick. He knows what comes easily to them, and he knows what they need to be pushed on to reach their full potential. As far as 7 for 8 goes, this ballet was made for a group of remarkable dancers in 2004, only one of whom, Huan Yuan Ten, is still with the company. But their imprint on the work remains, from Guan Ten and Yuri Posikov's long lines and yearning elegance, to Tina LeBlanc and Gonzalo Garcia's quicksilver joy and dynamism. The ballet does what it says. It's a work for eight dancers in seven sections, and it's set to a series of keyboard concertos written by Johann Sebastian Bach between 1729 and 1741. The keyboard, of course, in that period was the harpsichord, not the piano but Helgi decided he liked the updated sound of modern piano, using that instrument instead of the original in six of the seven sections. Only the male solo, created on SF Ballet fan favorite Joan Boada, uses harpsichord. This kind of modernizing of Bach's score carries through to the other elements of Helgi's work. The ballet's black-on-black color scheme, dramatic lighting effects, and shifting moods seem to update the Baroque music for a modern era. You also see this idea in the dancing itself, which is classical, but always with a twist. In terms of what to look for, this ballet is a bit of a numbers game. Notice how the number of dancers on stage shifts and morphs throughout the ballet. The eight dancers seem to be able to make an infinite, or rather seven, number of shifting groups, from solos to duets to trios and full ensemble configurations. Look for repeated motifs or gestures, 
There's a cyclical nature to this ballet, and ideas that appear in one section reappear later, bigger and with expanded movement. If you think about it as an elaborate theme in variations, what does that help you see? The second ballet on this lineup is Kathy Marston's Snowblind. This ballet premiered in 2018 at the Unbound Festival here at San Francisco Ballet. It was Marston's first commission for the company and her first commission in the United States, though since then she's had major premieres in New York and Chicago, and in general has become much better known to U.S. audiences. She's British and now lives in Switzerland, where a large part of her choreographic career has taken place. The first thing to note about Kathy Marston is that her work is fundamentally narrative. She trained at the Royal Ballet, an institution known for its commitment to storytelling through dance. Think about people like Frederick Ashton and Kenneth McMillan. And she is also the daughter of English teachers. So telling stories is practically in her blood. Marston often works from literature, and in the case of Snowblind, she wanted a distinctly American story, so she turned to Edith Wharton, whose depiction of a desolate, cold New England winter and of an equally cold New England marriage seemed fitting for a dramatic ballet. The story itself is fairly straightforward. Ethan, a married man, falls in love with his hypochondriac wife's cousin, who also happens to be his maid. When Zena, the wife, finds out about the relationship, she turns Maddie, the maid, out into the snow. And it gets worse. Ethan follows Maddie and they decide on a suicide pact. But it goes wrong and instead of dying, both are permanently disabled. Maddie is paralyzed. Faced with this devastation, Zena takes them both in and cares for both for the rest of her life. It's happy stuff, huh? So this narrative unfolds over music by some of Edith Wharton's New England contemporaries, including Amy Beach and Arthur Foote, with also some sprinklings of Arvo Pert, as arranged by composer Philip Feeney. In the stream of Snowblind, you'll see principal dancers Sarah Van Patten as Zena, the wife, Mathilde Frausty as Maddie, and Ulrich Berkier as Ethan Frome. I have a clip here from a May 2020 conversation between Kathy Marston and Sarah Van Patten talking about how they first approached the story and, in particular, the role of Zena. Here it is. The way that I usually start a ballet is without any movement. I don't come into the studio usually with any movement material or very little, um, but I do come with a whole load of research about the story um, that I'm wanting to make a ballet on, and usually a list of words for each character. So in the case of Snowblind, there are three principal roles, um, and the part called Xena was the part that Sarah um, created. And I will have these word lists, and I'll talk to the dancers about the part, and I'll sort of share with them these words, which are really, a, the lists are distillations of the research that I've been doing. And then we will start creating movements with those words. And sometimes I do that one-on-one -on -one with the dancers. Sometimes the dancer will go in another studio, in this case with my assistant, Jenny Tattersall, um, and jam a little bit, improvise with those words. And sometimes the dancers do it in a corner on their own. Um, and I would love to know, Sarah, how that was for you, because I guess that was pretty different. Do you want me to remind you? I wrote down some of your words in case it helped. Do you want me to remind you of some of your words? Um, sure. Just so the audience can hear. So the audience, yeah. So, so the part Zena is, is not a really sympathetic character, at least not at the beginning. Um, she's a hypochondriac. She's, she's the wife of Ethan Frome. It's based on, the story is based on Edith Wharton's novella, Ethan Frome. Um, so Zena is the hypochondriac wife, and we use words like self-examination, 
bitter, tight, closed, twitchy, demanding, attention-seeking, pernickety, brittle, um, perceives herself as a victim, cold and manipulative. <laughs> How was that for you? That's a great role. <laughs> it was actually, and it is. Um, so yes, I um, initially I'm I'm not as um, I'd say we we don't normally come in and as you said are given um, kind of words and uh, emotional uh, kind of background in that way to like you said, explore the movement and the steps. Um, it's always been, I would say, in me in a way that I tend to love to do dramatic work and create characters on the stage. Um, and I think you kind of, with the choreography that's given, that I'm always, you know, bringing into the emotional con uh, whatever the emotional side of it is, but kind of stripping that back and starting from what are these emotional feelings and words that then creates the movement is another and really fascinating way of creating this story. Um, and so, yeah, at the beginning, you know, turning around and looking at myself and just like you said, we just stood in the studio and I remember the first thing we did was try to figure out how does this character walk? Um, just how does the character stand? How does the character look, you know, and just kind of setting that tone um, out of kind of what instinctually uh, we both uh, create um, was very fascinating. It felt very much in real time, which is what I loved about it too. Mm -hmm. And even as we created Xena and then later on created Mrs. Robinson, I felt like because it it came out of that direction it's never a finished step because it's always you're coming at it from that emotional place that word and those intentions and it can always be evolving um in these real people like you know people are you know did you did it continue in performance to evolve yes for sure it's something that it never just you know, it was never the same. It was, you know, I felt like I deepened my experience of Xena. I felt the more I performed her, the more I rehearsed her or just experienced the work, the more compassion I had for this woman, mm -hmm. understanding her um, and just was able to really develop that side of the character that I think is so important in this story and, um, and kind of how it ends. If you've been following along with all things SF Ballet for the past few months, you'll know that Snowblind wasn't originally on this program five of the 2021 digital season. In fact, we are going to host the premiere of Marston's Mrs. Robinson, which Sarah mentions in that clip. But in a so very hashtag 2020 fashion, we ended up postponing Mrs. Robinson's premiere to the 2022 season. So stay tuned for that. That clip, of course, was principal dancer Sarah Van Patten and choreographer Kathy Marston in conversation about Snowblind. I'll also add that in this work, you're also going to want to look at the corps de ballet. They alternately represent the cold and snow of New England and the central character's emotions, adding even more emotional depth to this already very dramatic ballet. And remain attentive to the two principal women. Although on one hand, this is about the love story between Maddie and Ethan, it's equally, if not more so, about Xena. So watch for how this ballet is really more about her narrative arc than that of the two lovers. Anima Animus is the final ballet that rounds out Program 5. 
Created by British choreographer David Dawson, this ballet was one of the biggest hits of the Inbound Festival, alongside Snowblind, and was deeply inspired by two now-former San Francisco Ballet principal dancers, Maria Kochetkova and Sofian Silv. When David made this ballet, it was his first commission in the United States. A surprising fact, given that he is extremely well-known in Europe and several American companies have some of his older works in their repertoire. But just because he was new-ish to the U.S. doesn't mean he was new to all of our dancers. David had worked with Maria when she was a young dancer, just starting out at the English National Ballet, and he'd made his very first ballet, Born Slippy, on Sofiane in 1999. These two dancers, their artistry and their technical prowess, but also their extreme differences, served as an inspiration to David. At the time this piece was made, they were the shortest and tallest principal dancers in the company. In this ballet, he was interested in exploring ballet technique, and particularly the ways in which ballet's movements are tied to gender. In some sections, he gave weighty masculine movements to the women and lighter feminine movements to the men, while in others he highlights these typically gendered aspects of ballet technique. Unlike Kathy, David doesn't ask the dancers to improvise. Instead, he comes in highly prepared with steps and movement phrases already worked out. The music here is Ezio Basso's Esso Concerto, and its driving pulse seems to push the dancers and David to ever greater heights, pushing them beyond what seems possible. This ballet really is a feast for the eyes, and keep a lookout for the second movement and its virtuosic play between the two principal women. In particular, note how these two dancers can do the same steps, both technically brilliantly, but their different physiques make those same steps look so very different. That's a key part of what David's aiming at in this work. Also notice how the dancers are rarely truly upright. Everything is leaning at an angle, off balance, giving the work a feeling of modernity and urgency. While in classical ballet, the arms always stay slightly in front of the body, in this ballet, David uses the whole kinosphere, pushing limbs into spaces they never reach in classical technique. And so that is Program 5. These ballets made expressly for San Francisco Ballet's dancers and its audiences. Thank you so much for tuning into this season of To The Point, and meet me right back here for podcasts about the rest of the season's performances. If you haven't checked out our other podcasts, including recordings of our popular Meet the Artist interviews, you should go do that. You can find them on our website or in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts and the Google Play Store. Hit subscribe and you'll get our episodes downloaded as soon as they're posted. And in addition, please do leave us a rating and review in the Apple Store and reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at SF Ballet. We'd love to hear from you and your ratings and reviews help us reach new and bigger audiences. Thanks for listening and see you soon on a screen near you. 